Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights for making money in food. The Edible Alpha podcast is hosted by the Food Finance Institute, where our mission is to help food businesses raise the money they need to grow. Through our podcast, FFI staff talks to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food or farm business. Our regulars may recall that you're going to be hearing some new voices from the FFI family hosting the show. I'm Andy Larson. I'm a farm financial consultant for the Food Finance Institute. I grew up on a dairy farm, and my wife and I currently own and operate a pastured poultry farm. So I am absolutely thrilled to be talking today with Larissa McKenna. She's the Humane Farming Program Director at the Chicago-based Food Animal Concerns Trust, also known as FACT. Welcome, Larissa. Thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. Can you tell us a little bit more about FACT and your role as the Humane Farming Program Director? Sure. Um, So FACT, we've been around since 1982. So it's um, going on 40 years next year. Uh, We are based out of Chicago, but we are uh, a a national nonprofit organization. Um, Our vision is that all food producing animals will be raised in a healthy and humane manner and that everyone will have access to safe and humanely produced food. So we do that by supporting humane farmers, um, which is the the area that I work um, mostly in. We also promote policies that make food from animals safe and healthy to eat and we help consumers make informed food choices. So uh, I direct the Humane Farming Program, uh, in which I have the honor and pleasure of working with livestock and poultry farmers from all across the country. Um, we try to help them, give them skills and resources and funding um, so that they can raise their animals on well-managed pasture-based systems. Uh, so we have a grants program, a scholarships program, we do mentorship uh, uh, webinars, uh, and also we have a new financial training program that uh, we're teaming up with FFI to um, to offer this year. Wonderful. I'm curious, what brought you to FACT in the first place? Has humane livestock production always been a, a passion of yours, Larissa? Uh, well, kind of the, <laughs> it's a great story. Um, I came to FACT back in 2000. 2005. In fact, I was working um, kind of on very related projects since 2004. Uh, After graduate school, uh, I studied uh, ag policy and nutrition. So kind of um, the the macro level of nutrition, how food is raised and how how that can really impact uh, human health. So I started working on a project um, the Keep Antibiotics Working Coalition, which fact actually still Uh, is a part of and really leads, and that's to reduce the uh, overuse of antibiotics in um, uh, food animal production. So that was kind of like the the beginning of my my, um, time with FACT, and it's, you know, it's kind of evolved, uh, and I started taking over more of the direct farmer services um, and just really enjoying kind of seeing how, um, like I said, that kind of macro level of food production and how that can have such great impact on, of course, animal welfare, but also on human health and environmental health. Excellent. Excellent. Well, uh, so you've mentioned the term humane a couple of times, and I'm a firm believer that terminology is is pretty important. Um, And for fact, humane farming is not 
a vague concept. It's kind of a uh, a well-defined set of uh, production principles. Can you give us a little bit of an introduction to those principles? Sure, absolutely. So yeah, we do have uh, um, what we call humane principles. We aren't a certifying agency. There's There are several uh, animal welfare certification organizations. So we don't actually go on farms and certify folks. I just want to be um, clear about that. Um, but we do w- work with farmers so that they do kind of are able to take steps towards more humane husbandry. Um, So we'd say at minimum, farm animals deserve adequate space, access to the outdoors, clean water and air, the opportunity to express their natural behaviors, and then um, have a a natural, healthful diet. Uh, And it does seem like kind of a vague or loosely defined term, but we do have um, we do have beliefs and principles about what humane farming. Uh, you know, for example, we want the animals to stay as healthy as possible um, so that antibiotics are only used or only needed for when they are um, sick or there is disease present. Um, uh, and I'd say that, you know, what we've really been trying to do is help help farmers um, raise their animals on pasture and not just on pasture, but uh, in these well-managed systems. So there's rotational grazing. uh, The animals are able to move around to new fresh areas, that there's protection from the elements and from predators. So um, in each species, of course, each type of animal is different and requires different uh, um, amounts of space, different feed, different kind of uh, infrastructure. But... um, you know, I, I think that overall, that would be what we'd love to see, you know, more people be able to 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 do with their animals. So, Larissa, it's interesting to me that certain production practices on the list of things that should be included in humane farming or should not be included in humane farming, uh, they were put into practice at least partially for animal welfare purposes. Like, for example, I'm thinking about uh, beak trimming of day-old chicks or dehorning of calves. Um, both of these are kind of instituted to, you know, prevent these animals as adults from having sharp points that they use to injure each other. So what I'm curious about is how your conversations with farmers have gone when they believe that they're using some of these practices for the animal's own good. Well, I think what, um, what, what it comes down to is those kind of uh, mutilations, if you will, or physical alterations aren't as necessary when animals have as much, you know, have enough space uh, and when mm. they're not packed together, when, um, you know, they can move around freely, there's not aggression from other animals. And I think that's part of, you know, the, the, the real deal with humane uh, management practices is giving animals that ability to, you know, keep their bodies intact as much as as possible and uh, be able to live without fear of other animals. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, if you were looking at some of the standards from um, the well-known animal welfare um, certifications, you know, they really, they take those, those into, uh, into account and, and really um, either prohibit or uh, um, discourage um, beak trimming and dehorning and, and such uh, for that that reason. Interesting. I I I, uh, I think that um, 
I think that there's some things that work really naturally with a, a lot of people's production systems and others that are a little bit a, a, a harder hump to get over. Um, have you noticed any particular practices that have been particularly difficult to, to work towards getting eliminated from humane farms? Oh, that's a good question. Uh, you know, <laughs> I would say one of the um, real bottlenecks, I think, at least for folks that are um, really looking at, you know, from start to finish, um, is the sort of or the um, the processing and slaughter aspect of it. And mm. you know, if if uh, yeah, <laughs> this gets into you know lots of other kind of. <laughs> very acute issues, but it's also chronic that we've been hearing about it for, for, for years and just kind of um, how folks, there's a bottleneck, there's uh, issues, um, there's not the right equipment, there's not access to kind of local plants and facilities. And for folks that are looking to get, you know, animal welfare certified, for example, there's, you know, very strict practices that have to, uh, essentially your uh, processing processor has to be certified as well. And I think that's, oh, um, been a, yeah, that's been a real, um, that's been a real tricky because um, it's, you know, farmers can only, only have so much that they can do off, off of their farm. You know, it's, it's like they can raise their animals up to a certain point the last day and do everything right. And then not be able to, you know, essentially get certified because, um, there's not um, a certified processor in the area or they don't have the right um, sending equipment or something like that based on cost and kind of, you know, um, those type of uh, resource, resource issues. So that's something we've been hearing, you know, even before COVID. I mean, obviously there's a whole, there's a lot of issues that have become really public and um, well-known as of COVID when, when it comes to processing. But I'd say that's, that's one thing that I've heard a lot from folks. Interesting, because that's something that's become very poignant over the course of the past 12 to 18 months. There are meat processors all over the country who feel like there has been a, a shortage in available meat processing capacity. The farmers have felt like there's a shortage in available processing capacity. And now with the onset of the COVID lockdown, it seemed like there was this reawakening of awareness from the consumer standpoint about like, oh yeah, I could fill a freezer with a, a quarter beef or a half a hog from my local locker plant. Uh, and there was this rush on, on meat processors and many of them are booked out for a year or two years. So COVID has brought some pretty serious changes to that whole arena. Um, I feel like there's still a shortage right now as far the farmers that I work with feel like there's still a shortage of um, available slaughter space. Is there anything um, is there anything that slaughterers, animal processors can be doing in order to um, a little bit more closely align their current practices with some of the humane production and uh, now humane processing principles that are necessary uh, in sort of a workaday manner to get to a point where this kind of product, this kind of processing capability is more widely available. Are there any easy things that they can begin with as they work down this path? You know, I'm I'm absolutely not an expert <laughs> on that part of of uh, kind of the the equation. Um, uh, I think 
you know, just access to smaller facilities that allow for smaller numbers of animals, more flexibility. That's what I've been hearing the most. Um, like you said, things have been booked up for for years, or you know, more than a year in some cases. We've been hearing from folks when we did some surveys um, earlier uh, this year. And it really makes it hard for people to know how they can plan and if, you know, if it's worth raising certain animals at all because they won't, you know, they won't have some, um, somewhere to take them. So Mm -hmm. I think, you know, that issue, I think there's, it's also um, kind of put the, the idea in people's heads about, you know, are, is there an alternative? Are are there alternatives in terms of more, um, but you know, butchering versus slaughter plants, and how uh, what kind of skills and capacity is needed for that to um, make it more accessible for for the kind of the smaller small to mid scale size farmer um, that uh, might be pushed out <laughs> by you know the larger the larger um, producers. So, okay. um, but yeah, I don't I don't have a, an easy answer to that. I know that there's a lot of state. Nobody does. (laughs) (laughs) Stuff going on. Yeah, exactly. And how does that integrate with the federal laws? And I think that's all up for discussion, which is kind of, you know, I think it needed to be for for many years. And now it's finally kind of being um, looked at more carefully. So we brought up the harvest part of a livestock animal's life, right? The slaughtering and processing. There's, it's very difficult to have, uh, you know, consumer meat products without this part of the industry. I'm curious, how many of the people that you encounter take the the humane designation to a a more drastic conclusion and say, well, if if we're so like concerned about animal welfare, maybe we shouldn't be killing them for food. I, I, I'm an omnivore, I'm a meat eater. Uh, and I and I raise livestock, so I, I I'm not necessarily <laughs> a proponent of that viewpoint. But I know that there's a growing number of people in our society that have that viewpoint and are eating vegetarian and that kind of thing. How do you engage with people who tell you that livestock production, writ large, is a problem of our society? Yeah, I mean, it's, it is an ongoing conversation. I mean, I, I work, you know, uh, primarily with, with livestock and poultry farmers. So um, I have that perspective, but I, I, you know, know that we do have a lot of consumers in our network and um, a lot of eaters, right? And people are wanting to find the best options for, for themselves and their families. And I don't, I don't think that there's an, a total easy answer to it. Um, but that conversation about, um, you know, uh, w- <laughs> the knowledge that not everyone is going to give up animal products, whether it's, you know, even if you're a vegetarian um, or a vegan, I should say, and you're not going to eat um, dairy or eggs uh, versus being a vegetarian, which usually means you wouldn't have um, meat or poultry. Um, I think that we're kind of in, in a way on the same side in that we don't, we want animals to be raised well. Um, and that the reality is I don't think that our society will, for many reasons, nutrition, um, tradition, taste, um, 
will ever, you know, give up animals in their entirety, um, nor should they maybe because of there's a lot of there's a lot of information coming out also about kind of the beneficial environmental impacts if if animals are produced kind of in a more natural um, ah. Traditional nature, nature always farms yes. with livestock. I, I like that quote. Have you heard that before? Nature always farms with livestock. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I just I had uh, recently watched the the documentary Sacred Cow. I don't know if you've if you've seen that, um, but it, it does kind of look at these issues and kind of shows how you know for um, for for thousands of years, you know, that we, we, we did have ruminant animals on our, on our, um, in our, on our land roaming and trotting and, um, grazing and how that, um, how good that was for the soil. Um, so, you know, I think it's, it's, I don't think we're out to convince anyone one way or the other, but I don't think that we're absolutely um, on different sides either. But it is um can be a fraught kind of conversation because there there's a lot of emotion and a lot of um, passion um, that comes comes up. Absolutely, absolutely. I I'm actually curious. So given that emotion and that passion, how widespread is it? What proportion? of the consumers that you encounter are, well, and maybe not consumers you encounter because that's probably going to be a a specific sample, but consumers at large, what proportion of them are actually interested in animal production and animal welfare and the claims that are on the livestock products they eat? Is this growing? Mm -hmm. Yeah, to the best of my knowledge, it is. Um, I wish I had some stats up for you. I know that Consumer Reports has done some surveying that really shows that um, that folks are interested in how animals are being are raised. They are basing their purchasing decisions on this, um, and they want to be informed. And you know, <laughs> figuring out how the best way to do that and making sure it's meaningful is, of course, you know, that's the trick. Absolutely, absolutely. And in in my mind sort of legitimate concerns about animal production practice. It sort of it sort of presupposes some familiarity with livestock production, modern livestock production. Um, that's the type of consumer that's going to be the most conscientious and is going to have the most um, awareness and education around you know what's going on in livestock farming right now. So how can consumers, make themselves, I guess, more aware and more educated about the ways that their livestock products are being produced? Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's, that's a great question. Uh, I, I mean, I think there's the kind of one-on-one, you can actually talk to farmers at the farmer's market or, um, you know, there are some guides that will, sh- will give you uh, local folks that might be within 50 miles that you can visit. And, you know, seeing it for yourself and talking with them is one way. Obviously, I think most people are going to come across products um, at the co-op or at the uh, grocery store that they have to kind of make those judgments and those decisions without that kind of input. So, you know, labels and terms and claims and words and pictures that you see on these package um, packages um, are kind of what they have to go on. So, I mean, FACT does have some resources for consumers on our website. Um, 
about labels. Uh, and let me just look that up. Actually, it's foodanimalconcernstrust.org forward slash food dash labels. So some of the ones that you might see, um, including some of the certifications um, that we um, find really meaningful. I mean, there's some terminology out there that folks are going to see all over, including the term uh, natural. I think that's probably the one that mm. is on so many products, you know, and what it really means has nothing to do with how food was actually raised. Um, it's all about <laughs> kind of like <laughs> the post-production parts of, you know, it doesn't contain artificial ingredients or color and such. So that, I mean, um, I think even just kind of getting that point across is is a, a really important, uh, important one. Um, and, you know, I think that is one thing that FACT is going to be working more on in the, the next couple of years is, is trying to get these kind of resources and um, uh, guides to consumers that that are looking for them. Wonderful. I, I, I you bring up a really important point that be sort of becoming that informed and conscientious consumer is becoming. I mean, it's hard, right? There's one of the main one of the main tools in the food marketer's toolkit is to is to make a claim on a label and that that's supposed to make your product stand out from the products next to it on the grocery store shelf but the sheer number of claims can make you know the decision making pretty hard you know you see people standing with their smartphone looking up stuff in the grocery store trying to figure out mm -hmm. what it actually means um so I guess what I'm wondering, so it, it's wonderful that you have that resource out there as far as uh, uh, consumers being able to make themselves more um, thoroughly engaged with and aware of some of the, the third-party certifications that you might find on a label. And, and you guys, you, you mentioned that FACT is not a certifying agency, but I'm curious, are there specific claims or specific agencies that seem to have the most I guess the most teeth right now, the ones that are most reliable as far as really having a uh, uh, a meaningful claim as to how that livestock was produced. Uh, yeah, so, and we do go over this on that page I referenced, um, but I think some of the ones that are out there that, that are, you know, specific for uh, animal welfare, you know, are animal, Welfare actually, I think that they've renamed it as Certified Animal Welfare Approved. Okay. And the organization behind that is called A Greener World. Uh, there's an organization called Certified Humane um, that you I actually see a lot on uh, egg con um, con uh, cartons. Uh, the Global Animal Partnership or GAP, they have an animal animal welfare certified program that you often will see in Whole Foods Market. Um, mm. they have, a kind of whole foods is, you know, um, is really looking to have all their animal products, um, sort of, uh, labeled and this, this gap certification has different steps. So it goes from one oh. to five plus. So yes, at least, you know, it tells you a lot about kind of like minimally what happens. There's no, no crates, crates or, or cages, no antibiotics, no hormones, um, and then it kind of goes up to when you get to five plus, it's, you know, the animals are on there 
on a single farm for their entire lives, that sort of thing. So there's a whole continuum. Um, some of the lesser known ones, Animal um, Grass or the American Grassfed Association has some really good um, um, standards. And, you know, I, I, you can't help but um, mention organics or USA certified organic. It is not a an animal welfare certification in itself. It does have some good components. Um, mm. Uh, we do kind of recommend it with caveats because I think there's a lot of, there are some loopholes um, that uh, need to be shored up, but okay. it is something you can't ignore in terms of at least there's something behind it. So one of the things that we try to do with uh, here at FFI is uh, get our farmers and our food producers some really um, actionable insights to improve their business models when they're um, when they're listening to this this podcast and so I'm curious the the different certifications that you mention what kind of effect does this have on a on a livestock producer's business are they able to charge more for their product are they able to I mean and do they even approach it from a profitability standpoint are many of the producers, I'm sorry, I'm getting into a two or three part question here. <laughs> so let, let me start here. Are the producers coming to this thing primarily from a, um, a business bottom line profitability standpoint or more from like a philosophy of production standpoint? What's bringing the farmer to these humane food labels? Oh man, I, I mean, I, I, it's really hard to generalize. I think, you know, I think it's a combination of both. It's that they want to raise their food, their animals for food, um, you know, with integrity, with respect, with care. Um, at the same time, they don't want to go out of business, right? They need to make money to be able to continue and provide for their, for their communities and take, you know, good care of their animals. So, um, it really is kind of like um, there's a lot of considerations, I think, uh, when it comes to this type of production. Um, and, you know, I did some interviews or some intake with a couple of, of certified producers um, for a presentation I made uh, a little earlier this year. And I'm just kind of looking through that, you know, some of the benefits that they've they've they said was exposure to informed consumers, mm. uh, it, you know, being certified as a great conversation starter. Um, they found some grant opportunities, including some through facts. Um, uh, so, you know, I think it's, it, it's getting, it's making their case to their consumers easier, especially when you are certified, you have something that's backing you up, right. That you can say, go to this third party website and look at what um, they certified me as. So uh, it takes some of that onus off of the individual. Um, they've also said that it, um, it's improved animal health and welfare, that their marketing and consumer awareness within the natural food sector has been benefited from um you know, going through the, the certification process. Excellent. Okay. So the, in my mind, sometimes these certifications are, um, they're a little bit more useful for the, for the farmer or producer that doesn't have that sort of 
face-to-face interaction with their consumer. The, the way I'm thinking about this, the proverbial mm-hmm. example is the farmer that goes to the farmer's market. You know, they can tell the customer that, all right, I am, I'm raising this fruit or vegetable or livestock crop with no hormones, no pesticides, no antibiotics, whatever. Whereas the people who have grown their businesses and gotten a little bit larger and maybe entered into some of the retail outlets, whether that be kind of the local food co-op or on up to something like like Whole Foods Market, as you mentioned earlier. Um, Do you find that the people who are most interested in these kind of humane uh, uh, standards and humane certifications, is it is it mostly people who don't have that direct face to face interaction with the consumer, or is it uh, is it a mix of both? From what I can tell, it's a mix of both. I mean, I think there is probably for the you know very small um, growers, it's you know the paperwork and some of the fees. It might not make sense to get certified. Um, mm-hmm. I mean. Um, but once you are having your product out there without that face-to-face or that connection, um, and like you said, that that could range from kind of small to, to medium to medium to large scale, um, I think that that's when that comes into play. Um, and I should say that fact, you know, works with with farmers across the spectrum. We want people to improve their, you know, be able to improve their animal welfare, whether they are certified, whether they're looking to get certified, whether they're not looking to get certified because it doesn't make sense for their their the size or the their of their operation or just their customer base, um, but they want to figure out ways to do it better. Um, so I don't want it to to come across that that's the the only focus of of what we're doing. Um, mm-hmm. We really and even if it's someone trying to transition from doing something more conventionally or um, you know with more confinement, um, and they want to figure out how to how to move towards a pasture based system, um, that's something that we're we try to be helpful with as well. In your experience with farmers and your experience with some of um, the types of production practices that you've seen, it sounds like FACT really has a, a strong emphasis on, on pasture. And I, I've, I've, got a, I've got to out with my bias here. I raise poultry on pasture and, and everything. And um, so I'm curious, though, there is, the, you know, FACT's reach is, is nationwide. And um, if I understand correctly, and you correct me if I'm wrong, the the weather in Central California is different from the weather in Central Wisconsin, right? <laughs> so I've heard. <laughs> so the 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 access to pasture thing is obviously very important um, in in uh, a consumer sentiment way. Like I feel like many of the people who are looking for well-raised, humanely raised livestock, they have that picture of a cow on pasture in their mind, of course. So in different parts of the country, we're going to have different availability of pasture on a year-round basis. Those folks in Central California might have a greater period of grazing days in a given year than somebody in central Wisconsin does. So I guess I have a two-part question. How does, again, <laughs> sorry, um, first off, how do those people in the northern latitudes, how do they um, navigate 
the 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 lack of pasture availability in the dead of the winter how can they still have the same uh benefits that somebody in a more temperate climate uh would be able to easily get and second off those pasture benefits that we're talking about how does that translate into the actual um I guess I want to say nutrition, but I don't know if it's the right word. The end consumer product. How do those pasture benefits translate into what it is that the 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 eater is putting into their face? Sure. Okay. Um, well, let me just start by saying that you know, since we do have kind of a wide range of of climates, of geography, of animals uh, that you know folks are working with and raising. There is not a, a one answer. I think that we, as an organization, really trust the the, um, the individual farmers to kind of know their area and their animals uh, better than we do. So mm. that that kind of goes without saying, you know. And it's people are very. Um, I've found the producers that we work with so innovative, so creative, and. Um, very cost efficient as well. I think that's always, you know, on their mind. So um, in terms of kind of the Northern climates, I mean, if there's, there's cows that stay outside all year, right? Cows and bison and um, even some of the um, um, smaller ruminants, I think um, folks have figured out how to, how to feed hay in the middle of the winter, have them sacrifice pasture, um, you know, giving them some, um, some some areas or lean tos that is needed mm-hmm. um i think for for the smaller poultry i mean people some people overwinter in a barn that's you know or or they don't um you know they have different business models about when they're getting their birds when they're um how long they're keeping them um and maybe they're going to use them for stew meat you know after you know when sure. it gets cold um so, I, you know, I think people are kind of figuring out what they're, what they can sell and, you know, what makes the most sense for the, the space they have and how hardy their animals are. I mean, some of these animals that are um, bred to be outside, they, um, they're, they are hardy and they uh, can, can, can do really well. Um, in terms of the, the nutritional benefits, uh, we actually have put together a, a whole series of, of handouts. Um, first, we published them in 2019, and we just updated them this past summer. And cool. the results have been gotten even stronger in terms of incre- like the vitamins, the nutrients, um, healthy fats. Um, and, you know, when you compare food from animals raised on pasture versus more conventionally confined animals that are fed really high diets and grain, or grain high diets. So, um, and that's also on our, on our websites. Um, so yeah, there's, there's some real, um, there's some real documentation of that. I think it's just, you know, there, there's more research just kind of coming out and now it's becoming more of a, we'll have even more, um, um, data to go on in the years to come about what it really means. Fantastic. That's great that you're producing these things and and doing it with with refereed information. That's that's a really wonderful resource and benefit to the consumer. Um, I appreciate your guys' efforts on this front. <laughs> <laughs> 
And I should say, uh, I, I want to just give a little plug here um, in terms of those handouts. If farmers that are listening to this are interested, we do customize them um, in terms of if you'd like to insert some of your own photos in them and use them for your own you know, purposes with your consumers, we, we have that available as well. Wonderful. Um, so I'm I'm interested uh, again trying to bring uh, here at FFI. A lot of times we have to bring it back to the money, right? Because <laughs> what we're trying to do is help you yeah. know farmers and food businesses grow and get access to capital. And so right now we're in a um, kind of a macroeconomic climate where the feed complex, the grain complex, is at pretty high prices, and I think some of the livestock farmers they feel like they're struggling you know the the profit margins are slimmer than they would be if if feed was less expensive especially for those folks who are feeding um a large proportion of the diet in in concentrates right in in grains yeah is there an um economic or financial benefit to the farmers of starting to look into and take on some of these uh, humane practices, these humane certifications, these these different things that you can do to approach this audience. Can it improve your bottom line? Yeah, we think so. I, I think that, you know, there could be much fewer in terms of kind of external inputs, right, in terms of actually buying grain from other places, um, keeping it kind of in a closed loop system on, on your farm, whether that's when you start breeding and breeding your own animals um, and having uh, healthy soil to grow, you know, um, grass and forage for if you're doing uh, ruminant animals, kind of um, that's what we've been hearing from folks in terms of that. And they can also, I think, comes down to being able to, um, uh, kind of either have more more value added uh, um, sales, or folks are you know more willing to pay higher prices for these these pasture raised foods. So um, you know it, it's it, we're in, like you said we're in this really weird time, um, but I think that there's a lot of consumers out there that have been looking to make a connection with their their, their local farmers, and we've actually been hearing from you know. You know, anecdotally, I can't say to, to everyone out there and across the country that sales have been um, pretty good uh, and have continued to kind of stay so far. Um, maybe not at the peak that they were in March or April 2000, 2020 uh, mm -hmm. when when everything w went haywire. But um, that well, really, what happened? They're no, really I'm able kidding. To <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> uh, you know, retaining, kind of getting their customers, retaining their customers and showing them the quality of the food and that, you know, um, you know, and then uh, I guess we'll see what happens going forward. But I think there is an economic case, you know, that's not something that um, I have extensive uh, expertise in talking about, um, but I do think it is part of the the story, and that's something that I'm I'm actually looking to kind of hopefully kind of compile all these kind of benefits um, about pasture raised animal production, whether that's you know obviously the animal welfare that we looked really highly at, the nutritional, the environmental, the economic, the um, 
wildlife diversity, um, soil health, climate, everything, kind of understand all those really wonderful things that are happening um, uh, going forward. And, you know, and there's a lot of people working on them. <laughs> so trying to figure out where that's all happening, I think, is uh, is, is the trick. The example that comes to my mind, and perhaps this comes from, you know, working in Wisconsin on a regular basis, um, is the uh, the conventional dairy versus the grass-based dairy. Um, and a lot of the, uh, the mechanism for determining your bottom line in, in that type of example is changing your outlook from a pounds of milk per cow standpoint to a profitability per cow standpoint. So in a grass-based dairy, maybe they're not, you know, producing the same yield that a cow would, if, you know, being fed a larger proportion of, of concentrates or whatever, but they're also not costing as much because they can walk outside and get a much larger proportion of their ration uh, as opposed to being fed 100% of it. So um, I guess all that is to say, are there uh, specific enterprises or sectors of the livestock industry that uh, that have an easier time transitioning into some of these humane practices and humane certifications than others? Are there some natural fits? Oh, man, I think that that's a hard one to kind of generalize about. Um, I mean, I think it depends on where you're starting from. If if you've invested in a lot of infrastructure, you have huge houses for, you know, internal production of poultry, um, uh, you know, that would be hard to transition away from if if, mm. if you need, you know what I mean, if you've already invested in those. Um, uh, but I think you know, <laughs> poultry also take less space. So if it's a matter of space, uh, then then that that uh, would make it easier. I think that's where a lot of people start is with poultry. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and then add from there. Uh, I, um, I think with with the larger animals, it's it's if like you said, it might be that instead of raising number of head, you you downsize a little bit and do it outside. You know, you just rely on the the amount of um, land you have available. I think that's one other way I've seen people kind of try to make that transition. Um, but yeah, it's it's man, I I don't know that there's one answer to that. People are really <laughs> doing all different things out there. Oh, that's wonderful. I mean, that that, that, that can be widely applied to a lot of different mm -hmm. enterprises is a, is a great thing. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, and I think you're right. I think it does have to do a lot with the sort of um, the entrepreneurial mindset and the sort of rigidity that a person approaches uh, a new production system or certification with. So yeah, definitely important. Um, you mentioned a couple of times about the uh, the types of consumers that are you know, they might have a higher willingness to pay for uh, 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 an animal welfare certification on the label or something like that. Um, how does a farmer find those people? Where are the Where are those consumers, Larissa? Can you talk about that a little oh bit? Oh my god, my goodness! Um, I mean, there's a it's lot a to do with question. <laughs> it's a hard question. It's like, how do you how do I find? I mean, it's relationship building, right? It's um, kind of investing in. Um, 
<laughs> I think it's finding them and then retaining them. We actually are going to be doing a whole bunch of webinars this this uh, fall about that exact topic where it's like you have people in your network, whether it's friends, family, people that are in your CSA, that you meet at the farmer's market, that, you know, um, that follow you on Facebook or whatever. And how, and how do you kind of... Um, keep them and kind of put, you know, move them up the ladder. So I would definitely, I'm definitely going to learn a lot about that this fall uh, during our series. And I would uh, encourage folks to join us um, for that as well um, in October and November and December. Well, FACT does make a lot of educational offerings uh, available. Um, Talk a little bit about that. The, The types of educational resources that your clientele is asking for what are you what are what is the most highly desired thing to understand better amongst your clientele in terms of topic or in terms of kind of what yeah in terms of things um, that you what kind there? of questions what kind of questions are you being asked as far as oh. from the from the producers okay i want to get better at this i want to be a better uh, yeah. humane livestock producer. So I need to know X or Y or Z. What are X, Y, and Z? Yeah. Well, I mean, there's. I think there are some topics in terms of production that are uh, um, kind of across the board, really valuable um, grazing management. Um, and, and then also kind of the, the one topic that we've really put a lot of time into is kind of livestock protection uh, in terms of how do you do that well? Um, you know, you have your animals outside on pasture. How do you keep them healthy and, and safe? And so we've we've really looked into that. We've done a series of, of, of sessions with um, Jan Donor, who is uh, kind of the uh, a great expert on livestock guardian animals. Mm. We've worked with Sarah Flack, who is um, a wonderful um grazing expert um, based out of Vermont and has written some great books. So I think those type of general uh, topics have, there's a lot to go on, right? There's, and there's a ton of little, little ones within those. Um, And then I I, I have to say that, you know, uh, before COVID, but then also during COVID, we had, we heard a lot of people just clamoring for more information about business and finance and how to be, you know, have a better farm business and not keep their operations going because um, they felt like they were, you know, well, well on their way to doing well, you know, management wise, um, keeping their animals safe and healthy. But man, we, we every, <laughs> the, the business side of things is, is kind of a mess. So um, that actually led us to um, reach out to, well, we did some survey surveying uh, to kind of better understand that. And then, um, you know, last last spring and summer, reaching out to, to you all at FFI to see um, how we might be able to work together to kind of provide some of these services to farmers, for farmers, in terms of just um, uh, just doing it better operations-wise behind, you know, at their computer um, and uh, helping their businesses to thrive. So, that is, you know, honestly something that, um, like I said, we've been hearing about for years, but um, really came up big time um, over the last year. Well, and I got to tell you, we at FFI are 
absolutely stoked to be able to partner with you at fact in order to put on some of that educational material and yeah we'd we'd love the listeners out there to get in contact with us and learn a little bit more about you know the farm financial boot camps that are going to be coming on through fact and uh some of the really tailored business education that we're going to be uh making available to those uh livestock and, and other types of producers as well. So um, we thank you for the opportunity to work with you, Larissa. Absolutely. Um, that's going to be a really good thing. Is there is there something in the business management side, um, the record keeping side, is there something that um, that you feel like people have to just keep better track of? Is there a, is there a metric that they need to watch for when they're uh, transitioning and uh, an operation from a, I guess, from a more conventional set of practices to a a more humane or pasture-based set of plastic practices. What are the indicators of success, mm. I guess? Oh, man. I am not the business expert here, Andy, so <laughs> I might pass that back on to you. <laughs> but, I mean, I think, you know, in terms of um, – <laughs> just the the enterprises that that folks are you know how to think through that aspect of it and um, keeping things straight and separate has been um, something that I, I don't know that people are very well versed in um, and how to do that well and you know knowing that they that they just don't have a ton of time to devote to necessarily that end of things as well so keeping it simple and easy and workable um, and practical. Um, but, you know, really taking into consideration, um, yeah, how, you know, <laughs> do you see that you have lower costs because your animals are healthier, you know, survive um, more um, and, sure. and have less, less external inputs, let's say. So I think those are the, the types of things that, that come up um, uh, as best I know. I think you're dead on, Larissa. I really do. Like I, I when I uh, think about it, I think about you know some of the terms that are in the industry very commonly are cost of production and efficiency, right? And um, not in my time as a banker, I realized not every farmer has a a really detailed idea about their cost of production for every single enterprise. Most of them have a gut feeling. Uh, but they don't necessarily um, have a to the penny kind of measure for it. So I, I feel like keeping track of that pretty closely is probably um, one thing where you're going to be able to see improvement in in using some of these practices. Like you said, lowered vet bills, lowered feed bills, you know, and, and it's really about figuring out how much less it's taking to produce a unit of product as opposed to how much more, how many more units are being produced. Right. And then from that efficiency standpoint that you mentioned, yeah, like if you can get the number of hours you spend down, I know that that's something that a lot of farmers would love to be able to to realize, a benefit that they would love to yep. see on their farms. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And I just have to say that, you know, that comes into play, that very thing, the kind of the labor aspect of it comes into play um, with some of the grants that we fund um, in terms of <laughs> how do we make things better for farmers that are trying to do really good things for their animals, whether that's um, water systems. That's a big thing that we fund through our fund of farmer grants. So people aren't lugging, you know, um, buckets full of water out to their, their <laughs> side pastures in the middle of the winter so that they don't freeze. You know, they have their underground fr um, frost-free um, 
systems that were funded by part of their FACT grant. So those type of things, um, you can, there are ways you can do it. There is a little bit of investment that might need to happen. And whether that's, you know, getting a bunch of electric fencing or figuring out good ways of moving your, um, your pasture, your laying hens, <laughs> you know, in terms of mm-hmm. um, daily moves for that, if that's what you're doing, so that, you know, you don't break your back, um, literally, <laughs> and then also yes. figuratively in terms of, right? And, you know, the mental health components as well, knowing that you're doing your best and it's under control. Um, it's best, is as much as you can expect, right? <laughs> well, I'm willing to bet that there's an awful lot of clients out there that have worked with VAC who thank you very much for that kind of uh, investment in capital equipment that has improved their efficiency and reduced their their backbreaking labor. Yeah, that's <laughs> one of the one of the big factors of burnout for beginning farmers, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah, absolutely, okay. absolutely. It seems to me like we're running pretty short on time here, Larissa, and uh, um, I'd love it if you if you if I missed anything, if there was any major points about about fact or about humane livestock production that we haven't touched on or t- haven't touched on enough so far this hour. Um, I'd love it if you if you brought any of that up right now. Is there anything that we missed that you any actionable insights that you want to get out to our audience? Um, well, I would just encourage folks to look into our financial training uh, program programming this fall. We have applications open through the end of October. I don't know when folks are going to be listening to this podcast, but October 31st, um, and you can apply for participation in one of the FFI boot camps or a subscription to their online courses. Um, we also have some webinars that are featuring Andy uh, <laughs> throughout the the fall as well. And all this <laughs> programming is free. It's been un- underwritten by by FACT and some of our funders. So that's one thing to mention that's kind of very relevant. Um, we do have an ongoing scholarship program for virtual and or in-person as, as they become <laughs> available conferences, events, sure. training. You know, it could be going to the Moses Conference. It could be going to um, something that's more local, pasture walkie, um, on-farm. Um, so that's something to consider. And then I, the, the question I probably get the most is when are we going to be um, doing our next round of grants, fund to farmer mm-hmm. grants? And right now it looks like we're going to be opening the application period for that mid-November. So before uh, before Thanksgiving, and then there'll be about two months for applications. Um, so ending in January sometime, and then the grants will be given out in March, March 2020. So that's something to keep in mind. That's for people looking to improve or expand um, their pasture uh, for their animals. Also for folks that are looking to get certified or that already um, hold one of the animal welfare certifications. So it's um, it's really great. It's up to $3,000 for, for, for on-farm improvement projects. That can be a big deal. So just to clarify the timeline, you said it's opening up November 2021 and they should be awarded in March of 2022. Is that correct? Yep. There's a, there's a two-month application period approximately, and then um, they will be awarded in 20, uh, March 2022 Super. for use <laughs> in the 2022 season. Very good. 
Very good. Larissa, I, I got to say thank you very much for um, not only for joining me today and, and, you know, fielding some hard questions about uh, humane livestock production, but also just being a, a great partner. Thank you for the time. Thank you for the expertise and thank you for doing what you do. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha and the Food Finance Institute by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org. 